So it is with a great deal of pleasure that I present to you from Pompano Beach, my good friend, Wesley.
And he put the little kid down and said, son, I'll be back in an hour. I want to talk to you. So within an hour, he went back to see the pessimistic one, and he was sitting there. He had not touched the toy. And the doctor says, son, why haven't you played with the toys? And the little man says, little boy says, well, I know why you've got me here. You want to analyze me. And I don't want to be analyzed. He says, I'll start playing with these toys and I'll start lighting them. Then you'll take them away from me. He says, I'm just not going to have anything to do with them. And the doctor says, okay, son. So then he goes next door to the little pessimistic one. And this little guy was down on his knees digging in this horse manure and just throwing it all over the room. And the doctor says, son, what are you doing? And the little boy says, well, with this much horse manure around, there's got to be a pony somewhere in this box. <laughs> there's got to be a pony. So for you that may be new in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, that the things you've heard in AA seems like a bunch of horse manure. Well, I'll tell you, just dig in. And you'll be amazed what you find. You will find things that will happen to you beyond your fondest dreams. I know because I've dug in it. And I have found what I was searching for all my life in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, uh, my dear friend and your dear friend, Bish Mathis, used to say, uh, you know, I got my buckets full. Well, I didn't have a one bucket to, to bring this weekend, and my bucket's already full. I don't know about yours. The three previous talks have been tremendous. And that C CD and that syrup liquor, I, that gets me. I, I can't mess that one. I can't mess that one. And I am a Georgia boy, too. Uh, I just came from a few few hollers away from, from uh, CD. I, I'm a South Georgia boy. Where I was born, they were talking about Catholics this morning. I just have to think about this. My mother was born in Woodlawn, uh, Woodlawn, a suburb of Birmingham, Alabama. And my, my, my father was born in South Georgia. And my mother was one of those feet washing Baptists. And the, the worst type. And these, these, these type of Baptists just don't get along with the Pope. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> They have no use for the Pope. And so my mother taught me two things not to have anything to do with when I was growing up. But this is the truth. We lived in a little town called Adel, Georgia. I moved to Florida in 1926. Well, from the time I could, I was sitting on her knee until we moved to Florida, she told me it was two things not to have anything to do with. That was a damn Catholic and a damn Yankee. Now, those are two things I had nothing to do with. And so I, when I got to Florida, well, everybody there was Yankees. And when I come into Alcoholics Anonymous, both of my sponsors were Catholics. <laughs> so there you are. You know, I could give you a drunk log, but I'm not going to do that tonight. I, I'm going to talk about the AA program. And how, what I have found, and I think this is, this is necessary. Has anyone in here been sober 30 years? I don't see a hand. Well, you know, you have to be, now this is not a braggadocious matter. I, I'm stating Nick in this statement for this fact. When you are sober 30 years, there's something that you have to do right. Because there's very few. 
And this is not bragging, but and I want to tell you how you stay sober for 30 years. I think this is important, because I think every one of you out there want to stay sober for 30 years, do you not? What do you have to do? You have the tools. You have the tools in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is how you stay sober. You know, I need the program more tonight than I needed 30 years ago. 30 years ago, I had nothing to lose. What did I have to lose when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous? I had no self-respect. I didn't have the love of my family. I lived in a house. I didn't live in no home. I was a bankrupt businessman, morally, physically, financially, and spiritually. I wasn't acceptable in the community that I lived in. And the worst thing of all, I didn't even have a God of my understanding. That's bankruptcy. I had nothing. Today, what have I got? I've got my self-respect. I've got the love of my family. I live in a home today. I don't live in no house. There's laughter and love. I've been a successful businessman. And I'm asked to do things in my community. I'm acceptable in my community today. I never in my life had anybody come up in this little town I live on the part of Gold Coast and slap me on the back and say, Wesley, I'm glad to see you all walleye loop-legged. <laughs> Has anybody in here ever been congratulated for being drunk? I never have. Uh-uh. But I've had hundreds of people came up to me and sat me on the back and said, Wesley, you're doing a good job. Keep it up. That's the difference. That's the difference. I'm acceptable in the community that I live in because I have become part of my community. Because people tell me they hear about me. Isn't that something? And I'm an alcoholic. There's no stigma in being an alcoholic. None whatsoever. And an active alcoholic, an alcoholic phenomenon. And above all, the greatest thing that I was, that I have today is I have a God of my understanding that I can call my friend. Oh, isn't this terrific? But I'm still an alcoholic. I can still have one drink or I can have what I've got today, but I can never have both. Every day of my life, I have to make a choice. I can't have both because this disease I have is incurable. I can arrest it, but I cannot cure it. This I know. This I know. And so, therefore, I've got to grow. I've got to continue growing as long as I live in the program of AA. I've got to study and I've got to know more about it. And the longer I stay in this program, the more I go back to the basics of this program. The big book. AA comes away. It's Bill Caesar. The third legacy. The 12 concepts. And all AA literature. Because it has my answer for my disease. It is a medicine for me. And as long as I do that, I remain sober and I grow and I prosper. And I'm happy. I'm happy. But the minute that I divert this, I start going backwards. You see, the laws of nature even provide you either go forward or you go backwards. There's no such thing as standing still. You are either growing or you're rottening, one of the two. And this is the way it is, and I didn't make it this way. 
God Almighty made it this way. My mind is like a garden. I got to keep my uh, hoe in my hand all the time and have those negative weeds chopped every day. Every day. Through the grace of God. I didn't understand this for a long time. I spent four and a half years in Alcoholics Anonymous thinking that I was God sent to the program. I was the best 12 step stepper in, in Pompano Beach. I was the best secretary in Pompano Beach to their A group. The best chairman. No one could make a 12 step call but me. I was, I was it. And I thought I was doing a beautiful job. And I went down to see my sponsor one day. And he says, Wesley, when are you going to start living this program of alcoholics anonymous? I said, what do you mean? He says, when are you going to start applying the steps to your everyday life? I said, you don't know what I do every day. He said, my bird dogs are telling me what you're doing, boy. <laughs> he said, you're no good as a father. You're no good as a husband. You're lying and cheating in your business. He said, you're living exactly the way you were the day you started. And I'll call it synonymous. <laughs> he says, you have done anything but just stop drinking. When are you going to start living this problem? I said, Chris, you shouldn't say this about me. You hurt my feelings. <laughs> he says, well, your feelings are heck with them. He says, I want to know what you're going to do. And I said, what am I supposed to do? He says, you're supposed to apply the 12 steps to your everyday life. I said, well, I've been sober. He said, I'll give you credit for that. I'll give you credit for the first half of the first step. Four and a half years, that's all I'll give you credit for. He says, what are you going to do about your unmanageable life? I said, what do you mean? He says, your life is unmanageable, drunk or sober. If you can manage your life, Wesley, you wouldn't be living like you're living. I said, well, I don't know, Chris. I knew he had me trapped because I knew I was guilty. And so I went back to Pompano Beach. And this is what saved my life, and this is why I've stayed sober for 30 years. I got busy on the AA program, and I started studying the AA program. And I started applying the first step to my life. I found out, I found out that I had stayed sober, yes. I found out that I was, I had made a decision that I, that I was powerless over alcohol. I had accepted it, but I had not surrendered to it. Now there's two different things, acceptance and surrender. When I accept something, I, well, I'll accept it, but damn it, I don't like it. You know what I mean? There's reservations there in the statement of that type. And I found out after reading the big book of AA that I had to surrender to this. Absolutely in total, in total surrender. That one drink was two men and a thousand wasn't enough. That when I took one drink of alcohol, my life was completely in a state of chaos. That I had no control and that one, one drink set up this phenomenal craving in me that only another drink would satisfy. And then a thousand would not be enough. And I knew exactly what the end would be. I knew that I had a disease called alcoholism. And so therefore I was an alcoholic. 
And I accepted this without any reservation. You know, I have to divert back to some AA history now because I think the, for me to make you understand how I feel about the 12 steps and what I have to do every day of my life is that I have to tell you some history of AA as to where I find this. And I have to do the same thing that happened to Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob. Because I'm a human being just like Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson was. They were no different than you and I. And the same thing has to happen to me that happened to them. <clears throat> Bill Wilson, the last drunk he got on, he went to the hospital and Dr. Siltworth sent him up in the room and for three or four days he went through the usual withdrawal. And then end of the fourth day, Eddie came in the room and Abby, he said, Eddie, tell me those uh, six uh, rules you're living by. And Eddie told him the six rules and left. And so, Bill was full of remorse and he didn't know which, which way to go and finally, and finally he yelled out, he said, if there's a God, show yourself come in. All of a sudden there was a big bolt of lightning come in or something, a big ball of fire. And he said, as, as this thing went through his room, it felt like it, it was a, he was on top of a mountain and there was a spirit of wind went through it. And he felt clean. And it just scared him to death. He didn't know what had happened. Dr. Siltworth came in the room and, and Bill talked with Dr. Siltworth. And Dr. Siltworth said, well, Bill, I don't know what you had, but whatever it is, you hold on to it. Because it's doing you some good. I can see it. Well, you know, to show you this program divinely inspired, the very next day, Eddie come back to see Bill and brought him a little book. And this is the book he brought him, Variety of Religious Experiences by William James. This little book right here. Bill says the program of Alcoholics Anonymous comes from three places. William James, Dr. Siltworth, and the Oxford Movement. And Eddie gave this book to Bill and said, Bill, read it. Well, this is heavy reading. And Bill was coming over with a drug, and he didn't feel much like reading it. But he started thinking through, and he started reading, and he and it seemed to start giving him the answer of what had happened to him the day before. And he became involved in the book, and he digested the book with enthusiasm, and he found out that what he had had the day before was a spiritual experience. <clears throat> a spiritual experience. And he found out what a spiritual experience was. A spiritual experience, as said in, in A.A. Comes of Age, it says it is deflation at death. Has anybody ever heard that statement before? Deflation at death. That's not an alcohol in here that don't know what I'm talking about. Deflation at death. <clears throat> Ego. You've got to get rid of your ego. Selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of all of our troubles. And that's what the book says, not what I say. All through this book you will run account self and selfishness. This is the root of all of our troubles. And to get rid of this we have to deflate. Deflate at death. And rid ourselves of all of this festered ego that we are all so infested with. 
And Bill found out that this was, this was what he had done. He had had a spiritual experience. And he was so deflated that he talked to Dr. Siltworth about it and gave Dr. Siltworth this book and left. He was discharged and he went out on the streets of New York. And he was so deflated that he spent six months with enthusiasm out on the streets of New York trying to find an alcoholic that would accept what he had to offer. And he was a complete failure. And he come back to see Dr. Siltworth and, and talk to Dr. Siltworth about it. And Dr. Siltworth said, Bill, he says, you're doing this thing wrong. He says, you're preaching to these drugs and you can't preach to drugs. He says, all you're telling them about is is your spiritual experience, and then you're going into the Oxford movement, absolutes, absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute love, and absolute uh, truth. And he says, a drug don't understand this kind of stuff. And he says, they're listening to you, then they're going like this and saying you're crazy, and then going out and getting drunk. He says, you have got to develop a program where it'll be like a hammer and chisel. You've got to get inside of those drugs and you've got to keep chipping away and, and chip away all that ego inside of them. Deflate them while they will accept the spiritual values of life. And he says, Bill, there's very few people that have spiritual experiences like you have. He says, most spiritual experiences come gradual. In other words, spiritual awakening. He says, very few people have, have flashes like you have. <clears throat> and he says, you remember what that guy William James said? He said, you have to have deflation at great depth. At great depth. Divinely inspired, two or three days later, Bill got this notice to go to Akron. And the business deal fell through. And he had to find a drug, so he fi finally got hold of Henrietta Sabelton, and she brought him together with Dr. Bob. And Dr. Bob was the first man that Bill tried out this new thing on that Dr. Siltworth had told him to do. Dr. Siltworth said, Bill, he says, you've got to start talking to these alcoholics about the physical and mental part of this thing. You've got to win their confidence. You've got to make them feel that you know what you're talking about. Make them feel like you know how they think and how they feel. And when you do that, you identify with them, and then you can go into the spiritual values, the spiritual part of the program. And Bill said, well, I'll try it. And so Dr. Bob was the first man that Bill tried this new process on. He started to talk to Dr. Bob. You'll find this, and it comes of age. There's nothing new. Dr. Bob said to Bill, he said, Bill, you're the only man I ever knew that knew anything about alcoholism. He says, I've gone to doctor after doctor, and nobody knows anything about it. But you know exactly how I feel and exactly how I think. See, see Bill didn't have to talk to Dr. Bob about the spiritual values of life. Dr. Bob was 200 times more spiritually orientated than Bill Wilson ever thought about being. And he says, you know, you know what I think and how I feel. And you identify with me. Sure, I'll go along with you. 
And so Dr. Bob goes along with him two or three weeks, and you know the story, he got drunk and come back. And then he stayed sober forever till he died. Well, Dr. Bob had a phenomenal craving for alcohol. He could not rid himself of this phenomenal craving. And so the only way that he could get comfort was working with others. He sponsored 5,000 alcoholics, him and Sister Ignatius, in the hospital in Cleveland, in the St. Thomas Hospital in Cleveland. In two and a half years, he had this phenomenal craving in his stomach where he could not get rid of it. And finally, after working with his fellow man, 12-stepping them, and never charging one dime for it. And that's where we get in Alcoholics Anonymous that it's a cardinal sin to charge for a 12-step call. He finally had a spiritual awakening. A spiritual awakening. It took him two and a half years. Now, here we've got two founders. One founder had a spiritual experience. In the most minute measurement of time, he had a spiritual experience. Here's another man, another founder, that was far more orientated toward the spiritual side of life than, than the other one was, but yet it took him two and a half years to have a spiritual awakening. Why? Dr. Bob had self between him and God. You see, the phenomenal craving was he wanted to be satisfied inside. And so, therefore, it was more paramount in his mind to have a drink than it was to think of God and his fellow man. And so he had to absolute regiment himself to do this for two and a half years until he removed self, selfishness and self-centeredness, and he and God became friends. This had to happen. As long as we've got self between ourselves and God, we will never find God. And this is why the twelfth step is put where the twelfth step is. It says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, the first eleven steps eliminate self in the alcoholic, chisels away the ego. Now, you might say, well, these are your opinions. They are. They are, but you can find it right here in the books if you look for it, as I've looked for it. I know it's there because that's where I got up this idea or this fact. Now, when Bill Wilson sat down and wrote out the 12 steps, he wrote out the 12 steps of these things in mind with a set of tools that we could deflate ourselves. Deflate. A process of deflation. It took him 30 minutes to do it. And when he got through, that's it. And he handed them to you and I. Now let's see how these things keep me deflated. The 12 steps of alcoholics and others. The first thing he tells me I have to do is I'm powerless over something. An alcoholic powerless over something? I got him got a bit of spell to fix. I'm powerless over one drink of alcohol, a big shot like me. 
that's drank everybody on the table for years and here you mean to tell me I can't take one lousy drink? It's bigger than I am. Do you tell me that it lifts me every time I drink it? That I'm no match for it? I can't compete with it physically or mentally? That I have to surrender to that? Well, I said, yes, I have to surrender to it. That is deflation. Wouldn't you call that deflation? Something bigger than you are? It has to be deflation. It can't be anything else. And so that's where your deflation starts. It says somewhere in the big book, if you don't take the first step, you ain't going nowhere. And you know why it says that? It says that for the simple reason. It says, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. What is the path? The path of the 12 steps. And an old Chinaman once said, he who starts a journey must take the first step. <laughs> That's all. And so if you're going to start on the path or on the journey of Alcoholics Anonymous, it is absolutely a must that you take the first step. Now you hear everywhere in AA that this is a program of progress, not perfection. That's not what the program says. It says this is a program of spiritual progress and not spiritual perfection. But the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous is 100% perfection. How about that? Anybody disagree with that? You can't even belong to Alcoholics Anonymous unless you practice it 100% to perfection. This is a society of non-drinking people. We just don't drink alcohol in Alcoholics Anonymous. Did you know that? You can't be a mama. And so therefore, it is an absolute fact that if you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's one part of this program you've got to live to total perfection, and that's the first step. You have to surrender to it. Until you do that, you, you're not even in the ballpark. You're not even in the ballpark. <clears throat> the second thing you have to do in the process of replacing, it says that our lives are unmanageable. A big shot like me can't even manage my own life. That's what it says. It don't say anything about me being drunk. Don't say anything about me being sober. It says you just can't manage your own life. The little simple ABC says we are alcoholic and we cannot manage our lives. So, I can't manage my life. Uh-uh. I just can't do it. I spent four and a half years trying to do it. I'm going to tell you something. Wesley Parish's way is the wrong way. I'm an alcoholic. Now, I'm going to ask you. Did you say when you first drink you ever took, did you say, I want to drink this stuff until I become a member of Alcoholics Anonymous? <laughs> did anybody in here drink to become an alcoholic, to become a, a member of AA? I've never found a person that did. Uh -uh. I could not manage my own life. That's the reason I become a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I can't manage my own life drunk or sober. My way is the wrong way. Parish's way is a wrong way. I'll tell you this right now. If you want something messed up, you just give it to me and let me try to run it. You'll have a messed up deal. Well, I went for four and a half years trying to do it, and I was worse shape at the end of four and a half years than I was at the beginning. And so one one day, 
beautiful day, the sun was shining, and all of a sudden there was a flash. And I said, now, I can't manage my own life. What should I do? And I says to myself, I says, I think I will get me a manager. <laughs> Is that something? If you can't manage your own life, you better get somebody to manage for you. That's all there's to it. And I started thinking more about the manager, and I, thought I came up where I needed three managers. Not one, I need three. <laughs> First, I need a financial manager. Second, I need the living manager. And third, I need the spiritual manager. I was totally bankrupt. I couldn't, no department of my life was in order. Now, you would think that, that I would start working on the spiritual first, that's what the big book says, but not me. I'm an alcoholic. You know, my nose runs, my feet smell. I've always been born backwards, you know. And so I find out if I, if I, I want to get this monkey off of my back, this finances. And so I decided the first thing I needed me was a financial manager. Because I was in bad shape. Everybody was on my back. I owed everybody, and the only reason they hadn't thrown me in bankruptcy, I just didn't have anything to bankrupt. That's the only reason. And so I said, well, I'll go get me a CPA. And I said, no, I can't afford to let him know I, I don't know any more about business than what I know. I can't let, I can't, he'll run around and tell people about it. And I said, well, I'll get me a combination secretary and, and bookkeeper. I said, I can't afford to do that either because I'll have an affair with her. <laughs> I was guilty of all that too, you know. And I said, what am I going to do? Now, this is my story. I'm going to stick to it. One day, out of a clear blue sky, I started thinking about my wife. I married her in 1936, and she had $1,000. Now, I know she had $1,000 because we spent it. I know this, you know. And I know that she saved this $1,000 out of a little old lousy dry cleaning business down in Fort Lauderdale. And during the heart of the Depression, she saved this $1,000. So I said to myself, this girl can handle money. Now, my trouble is I can't handle money. I don't know anything about money. Money to me is nothing. I'm the type of person that I don't buy what I need. I buy what I want. Now, if you'll sell it to me on credit, I'll take two of them. You know, that's me, you know. So... I said, this gal knows how to handle money. And so I went home to talk to her. And I knocked on the door. And she, I didn't knock on the door. I, I walked in and, uh, and uh, I said, Rena, you know, honey running down my lips and, because I wanted something out of her. And it sounded too good to her, you know. And I said, Rena, she said, I don't have time for that this morning. <laughs> I said, you don't even know what I came home for. She says, I got a good idea. <laughs> I said, Rena, come on in now. I want to talk to you. So she came in. She said, what do you want? I'm in a hurry. You know how to treat you. When you're trying to be good to them, that's when they're the meanest. You know what I mean? <laughs> when you're trying to tell them the truth, that's when they really take advantage of them. She says, what do you want? 
I says, Rena, I want you to come to work for me. She says, what could I do for you? She says, when you left here this morning, you didn't want anything to do with me. Now you want me to come to work for you. What can I do for you? I says, I want you to manage my money. She says, I thought you wanted me to come to work for you. What money do you have to manage? I said, don't be facetious. I said, look at the security they'll give you. Look at the security. You run around here with this look of insecurity on your face all the time. I'm offering you something, girl. You better take advantage of it now while I'm in the mood. Finally, she said, well, Wesley, we've tried everything else. We just want to try that. And so, you know, for the first time in my life, I gave my away just a little of myself, you know. I let go of something that I couldn't do well. You see, I was trying to be everything to everything, and I was ending up in being nothing to nothing. I, I, I was just nothing. And I gave her just this little thing. I trusted her, and I gave her this thing. And she came to work for me that day. And this 25 years later, and 25 years later, I can tell you that not one day in the last 25 years have I had one bit of financial difficulty. I could always make money, but I could never manage money. And she has managed it all these years. And as long as she gives me what I want, I, she can keep on managing it. I could care less. I could care less about federal income tax and sales tax and property tax withholding and all that mess. Well, I'm too big for that kind of stuff. <laughs> don't have time to mess with it. You know what I mean? Somebody else take care of that stuff, you know? That's the way I feel. I've had 25 years of doing the things that I like to do, and I've been successful at them because I've enjoyed what I've done. I've made money, and I've been in that age. And that's the only thing. I don't belong to any kind of organization whatsoever. I never played a game of golf in my life. I haven't even been swimming in 20 years, and I live five minutes from the Atlantic Ocean. I just have nothing to do with anything but work, and that, hey, that's the only thing I'm interested in, through the grace of God. So I've had 25 years of doing what I want to do, and I have been successful. Two years ago, my son bought my business, and that's, that's something that's a dividend of that. He bought my business, and today he has it. And I don't have to do nothing. I have to do nothing the rest of my life. How about that? Isn't that nice? I have worked another day of my life. I don't want to. Because I give Rena just a little part of me, you know? Just a little part of me. She saved it. I didn't do it. I give her total credit for it. Well, I got me a financial manager. I went down to see Chris, my sponsor. And I said, Chris, I want you to be my sponsor living manager. He says, what are you talking about? I says, I want you to teach me how to live. I want you to teach me how to not lie, cheat, and steal, and be an unfaithful husband and a, and a no good father. He says, I wouldn't take that off of all the tea in China. <laughs> and I said, why not? He says, it's just too much wrong with you. That's all. He said, no. I says, Chris, I need you. And finally, after a period of time, he says, well, Wesley, I think you mean it. He says, I, I'll go along with you. But he says, the first time you jump the traces down, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to forget you. He, I said, that's true. That's good. And for 25 years, this man stood fast with me. 
and he was my sponsor. Now, if you don't have a sponsor, don't don't be unkind to yourself. That that's wrong. A sponsor is a living manager, somebody to help you with your living things. People that you can go sit down toe to toe, eyeball to eyeball, and talk things over. Oh, I wouldn't take nothing for this man. I, I have no words to describe him. If I was to describe him, I would say that my feeling toward him was a divine love of God. The only way, the word is akapeia, or gapia, it's used in, 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 in Greece. It means the divine love of God is, is spontaneous, it's unlimited, and it's unmotivated. This man is so much to me that, and part of me that I, I just don't have adjectives to, to describe him. He's dead and gone now. But he stood fast to me for 25 years, and he taught me what I should know. He taught me how to be honest. He taught me how to not lie and cheat and steal and be a good father. Marina and I love each other more today than we did today that we were married by far. And my son and my daughter hold deep respect for me because I'm their father. Just on account of this man, he taught me how to deal with these situations. And one thing he taught me that I want to leave here and nothing else, he taught me that anything big enough to worry you is big enough to talk about. Don't ever forget that. Never let anything pyramid inside of you and fester and become a major thing. Nip it in the bud. Find somebody that you can sit down and talk to eyeball to eyeball. I used to go down and see Chris, and I'd have the smartest idea you ever heard of. And he, I'd tell him about it. He said, where in the hell do you get all these ideas? I said, Chris, there's nothing wrong with this. He said, nothing wrong with it. He says, do you stay up all night and listen to these things? And, and read books? Where do you get them? I said, he says, a human being just can't come up with this kind of stuff. Where do you get it? I says, Chris, there's nothing wrong with it. Two hours later. Well, I think it's a pretty good idea. I said, why didn't you say that two hours ago? He said, well, I just wanted to see how convinced you was it was a good idea, that's all. And see how, if you stick by your own guns, Wesley, that's the only reason. He taught me how to think. How to think. God bless you. Well, I have these two managers now. I have me a financial manager and I have me a living manager. And I trust both of them 100%. I got to do something about the spiritual values of life. I've got to find me a living manager. Because the simple ABCs of Alcoholics Anonymous says this, A, that we are alcoholic and we cannot manage our own lives. B, that probably no human being can relieve us of our alcoholism. This is what it says. And C, that God could and would if he was sought. I still have this football in myself. I have gave Chris a little part of me, and I have gave Rena part of me. But I still have got that <coughs> uncomfortable feeling right inside there. I can't get rid of it. And, and I didn't know what to do about it. But being that they had took these pressures away from me, well, it opened up my mind enough to start looking objectively upon, upon the spiritual part of life because I knew it was important. And the reason I knew it was important was that I realized that every person that I heard talk from the podium that I admired and would like to be like in Alcoholics Anonymous, every one of these individuals talked about God freely, unashamed. 
And up to this time, I was a type of alcoholic that would remember <coughs> any of us said, now let's soft pedal this Godman. Now, let, let's don't, let, let's, let's be gentle with that. Let's don't run these alcoholics out of AA because they don't like to hear about God. If we're going to do it to them, let's do it to them gently. You know, gently. Well, I found out this one, this wasn't the bell of good. This wasn't what other people was doing. They talked about God freely, regardless of what other people thought. They told what it was like. And so I went to see this one woman that I admired. She was the epitome of that A as far as I was concerned, and I admired her beyond all scope because she was what I thought was just top drawer in this, this fellowship. And I knocked on her door, and she came to, to the door, and she said, Come on in, Wesley. She said, I'm making a cake. Go on and sit down in the, in the living room, and I'll be right in. So I went down in the living room and sat down in the rocking chair. And now I leaned back in this rocking chair, and my eyes went to the wall, and there was a picture. A little old 9 by 12 picture, maybe cost a dollar, the 10 cent store. And this picture was a sailor standing to wheel of a ship, and all around this ship was a rough sea. And this young man sat up there steering this ship, and he had no fear in his face. He looked exactly like this woman that I'd just come to see. And he was in the storm at sea. And I'd rode out three typhoons in the China Seas. And I know what a rough sea is. But yet he was unafraid. And I knew he should be full of fear. And I kept looking at the picture. And finally I noted that the, art, that the artist had painted in silhouette behind this young man, the Prince of Peace. He had his hand on his shoulder, and he was pointing away. And I says, this young man's got a friend. He's got a friend. And I sat down in that rocking chair, and my mind went back to the first day I was in my age. Let your mind go back to the first day you was in my age. Did you have one friend? Did you have somebody you could trust? Did you have somebody to confide in? Did you have someone that understood you? I did. And you know why I didn't have one? It's because I didn't want one. Everybody was taking my inventory. My wife used to say, my God, why did I marry you? I had 50 to pick from, and I took you out of the litter. Why, 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 why? I don't like to hear things like that. My, my, my mother would say, why did God give me a son like you? I don't like to hear things like that. And, and my... My, they sent a little old preacher around to see me and said, let's pray, Wesley. What did I know about prayer? Wasn't that awful? He says, Wesley, you're going to hell. I don't like to hear things like that. <laughs> My doctor would say, boy, if you don't quit drinking this stuff, it's going to kill you. I don't like to hear things like that. <laughs> and my customers, oh, they were very rude. <laughs> They'd say, boy, I'm going to tell you one thing. I was an electrical contractor in the worst type. Boy, let me tell you one thing. When you get through with this job, don't you ever put your foot on my property again. Oh, and I don't like to hear people say things like that. And so what did I do? I just shut them out. You know what I'm doing? Let me down. I just shut them out. And you could say something to me. It was like pouring water on a duck. Nobody said nothing to me, and I didn't pay no attention to no one. And I came in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I identified with these people because they knew how I felt, and they knew how I, how, how I felt. And through this identification, we sealed the bond of friendship. 
We had communicated. You see, communication is the start of all understanding. If you want to understand something, you have to communicate. Ross was talking this morning about communication in the home. If if there was any communication in a the home, there's never the divorce. But if there is no communication, there is divorce. It's just that simple. I've gone through that. I know what I'm talking about. So I said, this, these people have, this, this, this boy has communicated with the Prince of Peace. That's what he's done. You see, if you want to communicate, if you want to understand the AA program, you have to communicate with it. This is, this is where you communicate. The basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous. This book is not for reading. This book is to study. You never read a textbook. You study a textbook. You can communicate with the program through this book. This book does not change. It is constant. It's the only place that you can find the truth out about the alcoholic. Alcoholic Anonymous right here in this book. You can't find it out from me because my I can give you an opinion. And an opinion changes. I hope my opinions change as time goes on. I hope that I learn more where I can express it better and my opinions change. This is progress. But this book of Alcoholics Anonymous never changes. So my mind went back to this picture. And I says, this young man has communicated. And I never talked to the woman what I came to talk to her about. I, I said, good morning, I left. And I went back to my place of business, and I got me a wooden box about half size, this podium. And as I drove around to my electoral jobs, I talked to the Prince of Peace. And it started off casual. I tell him about Rena and about my kids and a few SOBs and this, that, and other, you know. And finally, though, we started getting down to the dirty gritty. And I started talking about me. Me. And I started telling them about this. The things that I did under the insanity of alcoholism. I don't know whether these things bugged you or not. Oh, but this was killing me. I could not get these things off of my mind. And I was absolutely black inside, full of guilt, shame. Every time I got around my kids, I just covered to, to think of what a a no-good father I'd been to these two young people. And I wouldn't forgive myself. I wouldn't even attempt to forgive myself. I didn't even know how. I didn't know I didn't know that was the, that was the answer. I didn't know what it was. And I was miserable, uncomfortable, full of fear and frustration, afraid that somebody would find out that I did these kind of things. You know, one time, for instance, these things bugged me, for instance, in 1941-42, I was a beachcomber in Puerto Rico. Now, if you've never been an alcoholic beachcomber in Puerto Rico, you've missed something. I'm telling you right now. I got so low down with the disease of alcoholism. Now, this is what the disease of alcoholism will cause. I wouldn't write my wife one word and tell her where I was while I was living or dying or what. And I wouldn't send her one dime home for a loaf of bread for my two children. That is a disease of alcoholism. And I was so deathly ashamed. And the Prince of Peace would say, Wesley, you don't live that way anymore. You're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been riding around this truck with you, and, and as far as I'm concerned, your wife and children are happy. 
and everybody around you is happy, you're living that age. Why don't you live this AA program today and that's all you got to worry about? I says, I did it. He says, that doesn't make any difference. Just live today. I says, I did it. He said, let me tell you something, Wesley. He says, you've got one eye cocked on yesterday, another eye cocked on tomorrow. If you're not careful, you're going to be cockeyed today. You better start living today. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And he'd say, all right, look at it this way. Yesterday the council checked, tomorrow's a promissory note, today is cash. Spend the cash. You understand that, don't you? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He says, live today. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He says, you wouldn't try to redeposit a council check, would you? I said, well, if I'd have thought about it, I'd have tried it. <laughs> I just couldn't get it through my head, what I had to do. He says, Wesley, you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Live today, and I couldn't get that through my head. Blockhead. One night, I was forced to go to an AA meeting. I'm a great believer in when the when the pupil's ready, the teacher will appear. I'm a great believer in this. I went to this meeting, and I think Ross said something about this, or, or Ruth did this morning. And this girl, gal got up, and she said this little simple thing, and I've never seen her before or after this. She says, you know, the greatest thing on earth is to learn to forgive others. But the greatest of greatest thing on earth is to learn to forgive yourself. And I says, that's my hang-up. Wesley, you're beating yourself over the head for something that you did eight years ago in a state of insanity under the influence of alcohol. Why should you condemn yourself like that? You are not living that way anymore. You are a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't live that way anymore as long as you're a member of AA. And you know, in a very short time, I didn't regret a drink I ever took. I didn't regret a heartache. I, I'd regret the heartaches that I caused my loved ones. I didn't regret a dime I'd spent on it. I didn't regret an insane thing I ever did. I, without alcoholism, I just accepted it the way it was. Today, listen, I have no regrets about yesterday, none whatsoever. I have, I, I accept it just the way it is because to me it was a blessing. You see, if I had not been an alcoholic, and if I had not went through the misery and the pain that I had gone through, becoming an alcoholic, I wouldn't be standing here tonight. It's just that simple. It's taken everything in my life, moment by moment by moment, to bring me right here to this moment. And if I had it all to live over again, I would still take it moment by moment by moment, just like it's been in the past. If I knew that I would end up like I've ended up right here tonight. It's just that simple. I have no regrets. Through the grace of God. And I came to believe. I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. You see, the word that was a hang-up was sanity. If I'm going to be restored to sanity, where did I have to come from? I had to come from insanity. And my pride and my vanity would not let me. And so, therefore, I would not deflate myself to the point that I lived in the state of insanity. And the moment that I accepted this without any reservation, I forgave myself for what I had done under the state of insanity, under the influence of alcohol. And I have no regrets today. You see, the steps are designed so, as I see them, 
that they're just like steps. One plateau leads to another plateau, and this plateau leads to me into 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 trusting God. I have to trust God just like I trust Rena and I trust Chris. I trusted everything they did. Well, why shouldn't I trust God the same way? If I and and He's the only one that's going to help me get rid of this phenomenal craving in my in my gut, help me get rid of my fear. He is the only one that. Uh, that can help me in uh, page 90 and 98 somewhere in the big book. It says, brand on every man's mind that he can stay sober regardless of anyone. The only thing he has to do is trust God and clean house. <coughs> trust God and clean house. The third step as far as I'm concerned is where I learned to trust God. Trust him. Just turn my life and my will over to him. Without, without any reservations whatsoever. And it took time. I'd turn it over to him and I'd take it back. I'd turn it over to him and I'd take it back. And finally I realized that I, what was causing this was these old ideas that I was trying to hang on to. And the big book says that we try to hold on to these old ideas, the results is nil until we let go absolutely. You see, we are searching for a new way of life. And we can't bring any of this old way along if we're going to start this new one. But I want to keep these old ideas. You know, it's a story that I like to tell because I like to hear it. It's about an airless that put a cable across Niagara Falls. And he spent 30 days advertising that he was going to walk across his cable. And at the end of 30 days, he had the multitude of people there. And so he got up on his cable and he walked across and walked back and he got a nice hand, but he wasn't satisfied because he wanted these people to know that he was the world's greatest terrorist. He saw a wheelbarrow over there, so he takes the wheelbarrow and he rolls it across and rolls it back and he got a lot of applause, but he still wasn't satisfied. So he put 200 pounds of sand in it and he rolled that across and you know what happened. It went the way of the sand made the cable go down like this and come back like this and he got a rising ovation. And this is what he was looking for. This is true. Well, when you have a rising ovation, you've got to do an encore if you're, if you're an airless. And so he had to do an encore greater than his last feet. And so he told his little boy standing over there. And he was all goggle-eyed. He'd never seen anything like this before. And the man walked over to the little boy and he said, Son, you sure do trust me on that wire, don't you? Little boy says, I sure do. I trust you in the time on that one. You are the world's greatest airless. The man says, Now, son, do you really mean that? And little boy says, I sure do. He says, You are the greatest. I trust you in the time. The man says, Now, you really mean that? And little boy says, I sure do. He says, Well, get in the wheelbarrow. And you know what the little boy said? Hell no, not me. Uh-uh. No, uh-uh. No, uh-uh. See, he changed his mind. Well, what does the third step tell you and I? It says, made a decision to turn our life and our will over the care of God as we understand it. That means total trust. That means that you turn your self-will, your life over to God and leave it there. And don't take it back. He says, get in the wheelbar and stay there. And I had a hard road to hold to do this. But finally I got in the wheelbarrow. And then I was ready. Because you see, I eliminated my greatest enemy. And that was my interference. 
my interference is eating me alive. But when I trusted God my for the first time in my life, I accepted him, the Prince of Peace, as my spiritual manager. And I had all the managers, and I trusted all the managers in the same degree. I trusted Rena, I trusted Chris, and I trusted God. I was ready to clean house. I was not going to sweep underneath the rug any of this stuff anymore. I was going to lay it all out and look at it just the way it was. Because I was unafraid. I was unafraid to look. There was nothing big enough on earth as I had God on my side and it wasn't but one person on earth big enough to hurt me. And you know who that was? Me. I'm the only person on earth big enough to hurt me. Me. And as long as I trust God, I have nothing to fear. Nothing. And so I got out my pencil and paper and I started writing my inventory. It says, be honest and thorough from the very start and put it all down. Put it down. It says you've got to be fearless. You have to be thorough and fearless. You've got to be fearless. What does the word fearless mean? The word fearless means without fear. If you have any fear left in you, you will dilute your inventory. You won't put it all down because you'll say, well, I'm not going to put that down because I don't think that's too important. And you know damn well it's important. <laughs> but you won't put it down there, you know. I used to go to Chris. I said, Chris, I'm having trouble with that fourth step. He says, I can tell you what's wrong. What's not? I said, what is it, Chris? He says, you haven't taken the third. I said, well, I think it's not too good with the third. He said, well, I know. He says, you haven't taken the second. <laughs> and I said, well, Chris, I'm not do too good with the second. He said, well, you have, let's start all over again. That's the way it is. This is the way that Bill wrote this thing for us to have this amethyst chisel, chisel inside, deflating, 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 looking at ourselves for the first time in my life when I took the fourth step. I looked at myself exactly the way I was, not the way I pretended to be. I quit playing games with me. I became honest. Howard Benhoff of Cleveland, Ohio, used to say that when he took the fourth step of Alcoholics Anonymous, he found that he had gangrene of the soul. And I know no other way to put it. That's what I found I had. But I was willing to do something about it. It didn't worry me anymore because I had God on my side and I trusted him and I knew that he would do the right thing. I knew it. I knew it. And when I finished, see, see the fourth step is so important because when you take the fourth step, you're going to use it four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Man, you're going to use that paper up. Get you some good paper when you, because you're going to use it. Don't wear it out. Buy old cheap paper and it tears, you know, and you got to do it all over again. And you have to put down those things that you thought about after you made your inventory, you know. You'll never be through with it. And then I went on, deflating myself. I told God, myself and another human being, the exact nature of my wrongs. Exact nature of my wrongs. Then I became willing. Then I became willing. For God to remove my defects of character, my sense of commission, doing the things I know that I shouldn't do every day. 
We have a, now if nobody has any, any character defects that they'd like to start working on, I found one that I was terrific, was infested with it, and that was gossip. And you know how I corrected it? I corrected it with what I call the Shady Dozen. Now this is pretty good. That does me a lot of good because I cleaned up a lot of, a lot of Wesley Parish's life with the Shady Dozen. The Shady Dozen is this. It says this. It says, uh, I heard, they say, everybody said, have you heard? Did you hear? People say, isn't it awful? Did you ever? Would you think? Don't say I told you. Oh, I think it's terrible. I was guilty of that. I was guilty of being a gossiper. And I'll call it synonymous. And there's no worse thing. There's no worse thing. It's one of my character defects. And I asked God, told God I was willing to do something about it because I was creating unhappiness in the lives of others and, 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 and very unhealthy conditions in my own. And then I went on and said, humbly asked him to move our shortcomings. In other words, this is why humility enters into your life, but there's such a thing. Humble. When Bill Wilson first made this, he says, humbly on your knees. You ask God to remove your shortcomings, your sin of omission. Not doing the things you know that you should do. The sixth and seventh step, you will find in 12 and 12. You won't find too much of it in the big book. But it's well worth reading it. Because if you live the sixth and seventh steps every day of your life, you will have a perfect day. In other words, your sense of commission, doing the things you know that you should not do. Sense of omission, not doing the things you know that, uh, uh, not doing the things you know that you should do. If you live not doing the things you know that you should not do every day and do the things you know that you should do every day, you've got a perfect day. This is what we call the success steps of our policy. And then from there we go into the, to, to the eighth step to become willing to uh, uh, make amends. Make a list of persons who had harmed and became willing to uh, make amends to them all. In other words, sit down and make a list. Take your fourth step. You've got most of them there. And make this amends. And look it over. And, and get away from being ashamed of walking down the streets of your hometown sober. You see, a lot of, long time in my life, I went on the other side of the street in my hometown keeping passing people. And when I made my amends and I could walk down the same side of the street they walked down, I did this. But it says don't be a, don't be a bull in the china closet. All of this is a process of deflation. <laughs> it says, may the direct and such people wherever possible, except do so the injure them or others. Don't clean your own church till at the expense of others, is what it's saying. For the first time, start taking your fellow man in consideration. This is deflation. Ten, continue. Continue to mean do what you've done in the past. You are a human being and you're going to make errors. So, Take your daily inventory and clean up your day every day. Continue to take a personal inventory. And if you made mistakes, which you will, because there's no perfect human being, every human being makes, makes mistakes, become willing. Promptly admit it.
This is the passionate depth. And Levin talked through prayer and meditation. Prayer is to talk to God, and, and meditation is to listen to God, and there is never a perfect relationship between God and man. There's always room for improvement. There's always room for progress. But never forget it. Conscious contact with God is we understand and praying only for his knowledge, for his will for us and the power to carry that out. What is God's will for me? God's will for me is just for me to make a better me. That's all. That's the only thing he wants for me. Just for me to make a better me. That's all. God said, build a better world. I said, how? It's so large and so complicated now. I'm so small and useless now. There's nothing I can do. And God in all his wisdom said, well, just build a better you. That's all he said. That's all he wants for me. And I'm quite sure that's all he wants for you. And by this deflation, we come to step 12, and it says, having had a strength, you're comfortable inside. You're alcohol. Alcohol is no part of your life anymore. You are spiritually sick. You have eliminated your alcoholic mind. And you have a brand spanking new way of living and thinking and doing. And you're credit to the human race. And you have something to carry to your fellow man after having this spiritual experience. As a result of these previous 11 steps, you house clean and clean up your house. And you're a human being. You're free. You're free. You're free. And if anyone should understand what freedom is, it's an alcoholic who is free of his old self. That's real freedom. And to, we try to carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. We try. The best piece of 12-step work I can do is walk down the streets of my hometown sober, showing people what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous will do for one human being. And if it does it for me, it'll do it for them. There's no better attraction than just walking down the streets of your hometown so I know because I've had people come to me. I've had the time and I've thought it's anonymous for people to come to me and say, I've been watching you for 10 years, Wesley. I want to know what you're doing every day. I want some of that. I have learned my life. I'm an alcoholic. Then you plant the seed of alcoholics into their life and watch it grow and coming to beauty. Many, many times this has happened to me through the grace of God. And to practice these principles in all of our affairs, what principles? The principles, the spiritual principles of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what is the spiritual principles of Alcoholics Anonymous? The truth. That's all. Just practice the truth in your everyday living with all your fellow men. You see, this is a perfect program. This is a program that will give you and I exactly what we are searching for all our lives. I was an alcoholic. Why I was an alcoholic was that I was the last one on the assembly line on Friday afternoon. And when they put me together, they forgot to tighten up the screws. There was a hurry to go home. I'm quite sure of it. And so when I took, took that first drink of alcohol, it acted as a screwdriver. It just made a whole person out of me. And I religiously said to myself, I'll drink it, 
because it does to me for what I want to do. It makes me a whole person. And so I religiously did this for 17 years, and day by day I graduated into the addiction of alcoholism. If castor oil had, had the same effect on me as alcohol, I'd have been a castor oil. It wouldn't have made a better difference. <laughs> wouldn't have made a better difference. But I have a program now that I can live. I can live. I can live. And I can keep it. Now, I want to return to AA Comes of Age, and I want to read you something. I have gone through the 12 steps, and I have told you about deflation at depth, did I not? Dr. Tebow, Bill thought enough of him to put him in A.A. Comes of Age, and he was a great friend of A.A. Now listen to what he has to say. This is for you old-timers in here. Listen. It says, it is common knowledge that a return of full-fledged ego can happen at any time. Years of sobriety is no insurance against this reoccurrence. No A.A., regardless of his veteran status, can ever relax his guard against the encroachments of a revising ego. Recently, one AA writing to another reported that he was suffering, he feared, from halotosis, <laughs> a reference to the smugness and complacency which so easily can creep into the individual with years of sobriety behind him. That's why you live this program one day at a time. You have to deflate the inflate. When you are unhappy, I'm going to leave you a little something here now. When you're unhappy, you're inflated. When you're happy, you are deflated. When you've got your mind on yourself, you're unhappy and you're inflated. When you've got your mind on God and your fellow man, you are deflated and you're happy. And this is the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I came in and I, I said, why can I, where can I see this holy one? Where can I see his only son? Wise men ask, and I'm asking still, where is this man of goodwill? Is he far away in some distant place, ruling unseen from a throne of grace? Is there no place on earth that I might see to give me proof of eternity? If there's a God, show him to me. How many of you said that? It is true that I have never seen his face. But his likeness shines forth from every place. The hand of God is everywhere along our life's busy thoroughfare. The things we see and touch and feel. This is what makes God so very real. The silent stars and timeless skies, the wonderment in our children's eyes, the gossamer wing of a Herman bird, the joy of a kindly word, the autumn haze, the breath of spring, the chirping song, the cricket sings, a rosebud in a thinner vase, the smile upon a friendly face. In everything, both great and small, you see the hand of God in all. But who can watch a new day birth? Or feel the warm life-giving earth? Or look at skies through lace of trees? And feel the softness of the breeze? And say they have never felt his grace or looked upon his face. I can't because I've been a mother of alcoholics enough. <laughs>